friends, Romans, countrymen, and uh, fans of Hee Haw, it's Bill Mesnick and Rich Buckland, the splendid Bohemians, back for another episode of Put on a Stack of 45s, the program that extols a 45 RPM of virtue, in our estimation, high virtue, along with the artist performing it, of course. And the writer, the writer always counts, because if you don't have the writer, you don't have the song, and then this, this, it can't get sung or played, right? Yes, that's, that's profound. That, thank you so much. Thank you. This is the way, this is how I was taught to think. This is, uh, put on a stack of 45s, and we're going, we're going to a place, we're going to a place that uh, we'll never see again, because there were many people that feel that the uh, performer we're about to introduce you to uh, had no business singing, <laughs> period, let alone on, Is that re- true? on records. There, there, we're talking about Skeeter Davis, and she, had, she was a writer. You talk about right. She co-wrote, uh, I think they said, 70 songs, and she had several hits. So why, why so disparage? I love Skeeter Davis, but you, my friend, and let's go back. If I didn't introduce you to George Jones, what would you have thought the first time you heard George Jones? Oh, I, I, you, I don't know if you, well, you, you probably did introduce me to George Jones, although I've always loved the races on, you know. Okay, um, now I'm not comparing the voices. I'm just simply going to the urban versus country interpretation of what country singers sound like as opposed to urban singers. So Skeeter Davis uh, from uh, Dry Ridge, Kentucky, was not considered country enough? This was a crossover in 19... 19- I'm not creating an argument here. I bought Skeeter Davis's albums when I was nine years old. I love Skeeter Davis. I've always loved the Davis sisters. I have the entire Davis sisters collection, and that's a tragic story because one of the yes we'll get into that but what 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 are you provoking I am, what am when the end of the world was released in 1963 and began to cross over do you believe that the same kids listening to love me do understood what skeeter davis was doing yes i did and that's why oh I re- you're so that's why shit. i recall this song why this song is is impaled in my i'm not heart. talking about you I'm talking about. Well, I was a kid. I was uh, I was uh, nine years old in 1962 when this record was made, um, and uh, you know, I, it's interesting. I chose it. I chose it as a few of songs that I've chosen just pop into my head for no reason. I think maybe the end of the world popped into my mind because people are talking about. The, the end of the world. Times that we live in as the end of the world. And I think even at nine years old, I had existential angst. And I connected. I never connected with the love song aspect of this. I always thought about the, the fatalistic doom uh, attitude. 
uh, that was inherent in this song. So you were interpreting it in the George Carlin intellectual nature and emotional nature of a youngster. Yeah, it wasn't intellectual. It was it was it was just uh, instinctual. And I, go, thinking about it, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis was going on during that time, and I'm wondering if, in the back of um, Sylvia D's mind, the woman who wrote the lyrics of this song uh, as a tribute to her father after his death, um, had the sense of the Cuban Missile Crisis and and the existential uh, uh, crisis that was going over our consciousness at the time in her head. Let me pose this question to you culturally. Did you watch Hee Haw? Hardly. Okay, why? I found it uh, a little off-putting. Due to? I'm not trying to grill you here. The cornball nature. Of I'm not trying. Humor. This is not the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. I'm I'm trying to. <laughs> well, give, I'm just telling you. I'm, I'm, tr- yeah, I'm, I'm answering your question. Yes, and I'm, I'm trying to give you your youthful, intelligent, poetic, emotional interpretation of this particular recording was the opposite of what I heard. I heard someone who dramatically influenced the young Tammy Wynette, the young Dolly Parton. I heard a young woman who was capable of imparting a vocal without any necessary accoutrements to present the artistry, the heart, and the soul of what vocalizing tenderness is all about and that is primarily her legacy well that's probably what penetrated my my heart you know is there her voice um and this record was produced by chet atkins by the way the b-side was well, who some, somebody loves you and it made it to number two on the uh billboard charts it's on the rca label the end of the world The New York Times critic Robert Palmer described her as an extraordinary country-slash-pop singer. So he saw her as a crossover artist prior to anyone seeing any woman singing with that vocal style permeating the airwaves. It took many years to hear women sing like Skeeter Davis sang. We were getting accustomed, so accustomed to Diana Ross and to Martha Reeves. And few of us listened to the country stations as I did and turned the dial and tried to get all of the countries that played all the 78s you couldn't get from years ago. So because my curiosity was different than the usual kids' curiosity. Hee Haw was an important program. It was a very important television program. It was the program that gave us an understanding if we listened harder and closer to that audience that gave us Donald Trump. It is the, yeah, never, never my cup of tea. It, but is that not true? Yeah, oh okay. yeah, absolutely. Was Skeeter Davis I did, a part I of that? I did respond to Buck Owens. Okay, but was Skeeter Davis a part of that club? Of course. 
Yeah. Skeeter Davis sure. was married to Ralph Emery. We're talking about hee-haw. Well, <laughs> you're not talking have... about hee-haw. No, I am. You're talking about hee-haw. Yes, and I'm talking but about... But it's interesting, she also, after Ralph Emery, she married Joey Stampinato of oh, NRBQ. So she got hip. Yeah, now, I think you and I saw NRBQ. Yeah, was, I know I did. Yeah, I forget did. where. Do you remember where? I think it was in my father's place. I think you're right. Yeah, it was in I my think father's you're place right. in Roslyn and Long I, Island. Yes. I remember seeing them and having a, a good partying time. Yeah, it was a good it was a good band. It was a good band. As Skeeter got older, she obviously got looser. Um, to think of her uh, growing up as she grew up uh, in that kind of um, in that kind of poverty. And then getting this success with her sisters, and that you want to, you wanted to uh, impart the story of the Davis sisters. Could you give us? Yes, sure, sure. I've forgotten more than you ever know about him. You think you know the smile on his lips. Also, I just want to mention that in 1993, she published her autobiography. Yes, which Bus I still, still have. So if anybody wants to go in deeper, it's yeah. Bus Fair to Kentucky. I've read, I've got the book, and uh, I bought it when it first came out. And I think it's, that it's a, it's one of those bio, autobiographies of the day. You didn't tell everything, you told the things that the fans wanted to hear. So anyway, in terms of the Davis sisters, you know, uh, Skeeter Davis was born Mary Frances Pennick in 1931. Uh, she became friends with a girl named Betty Jack Davis and assumed for professional purposes the name Davis and they became the Davis sisters. And they had uh, some early country success and as you say, influenced Dolly and Tammy, and they had a number one country record called I Forgot More Than You'll Ever Know. Um, and then tragically, Betty died in a car crash. Now, this is where the story gets gothic, right? So Betty's mother uh, convinced Skeeter to, uh, she was also in the car and was also hurt in the car crash, to um, recuperate at, at the Davis house, where apparently, as time went on, she was held prisoner. And um, then the mother convinced Skeeter to join up with Betty's uh, sister, younger sister, Georgia, and they continued on for several years as the Davis sisters once again. But Skeeter had issues. Now, in 1953, you were involved in a, in a traffic accident. Did that affect your career? Sure did, because uh, that was a tragedy, you know, in my life, and one of the most traumatic... What happened? It was close to Cincinnati, Ohio. We were about 25 miles from home, 
and a soldier went to sleep uh, driving his car and hit us. We had a head-on collision and it took the life of Betty Jack and, and left me in a very, very shattered uh, place too, you know. Well, you, was it, you mean it, it shattered you mentally or and it Mentally, physically, physically every way, yeah, because I was a, just really um, a kind of a helpless soul there for a while. In 56, she married a gentleman named uh, Kenneth Depew. Kenneth Depew, She was yes. suffering. He was a railroad worker and an acquaintance. Uh, they dated and they married, but uh, <laughs> their marriage was not consummated until eight days later, which gives you yeah. a little hint as to, as to what's going on there. But uh, the marriage uh, created depression, and she harbored a death wish over the grief of, of Betty, as well as this marriage that was uh, something that she didn't actually want. Did she marry to get out from uh, Betty's mother? Well, you know, the, the, there are things that we can we can read and that people even write in order to give us further insight into our lives. But I've always had these conflicts about stories that are told. Um, well, what does she say in her autobiography? She doesn't really go into it deeply. Oh, okay. So it's not an issue that you can really interpret, you know, the individual knows, and we can gossip our way into heaven. But uh, she obviously had a lot of uh, suffered tragedy at a very youthful age and was finding ways to uh, soothe it, as so many of us do. Now, I've forgotten more than you'll ever know retained popularity. Why, my friend? Uh, you tell me. It was recorded by Mr. Bob Dylan, also known as Robert Zimmerman. On an album. Oh, right, in that horrible uh, compilation record. <laughs> I love that record. Do you really? Yeah. What, 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 what oh, that's a grab bag. That's a real... Yeah, uh, they took... <laughs> I, I love when they take those, those throwaway tracks. I've got so many bootlegs that are throwaway tracks, and now... They release them as if these are the A sides. But it's a self-portrait, I think. It's self, yeah, it was self-portrait. Yeah. And in the days that I originally heard these recordings, they were only available on bootleg, vinyl, or and uh, then. Yeah, later. you put them all together, though. It's a little uh, <laughs> send a stifling. Hey, to hear Dylan sing, send a message to Mary. You know. Yes, I liked um, all the pretty horses in the sun. But here's what it, it does, regardless of whether you're a Dylan fan or not. For those who have any ears, you're going to ask, who, who recorded that? Who, is that a Dylan song? For those yeah. who even give a damn. Most people right. presumed everything Dylan You did. are in a very exclusive club. He wrote. In, w w which club is that? <laughs> the club, the elite club of those in the know. And that's why you are at the microphone. No, I, I have, and, 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 and your sarcasm is, is, is readily... No, is I'm readily, not being sarcastic. You're no, you are. You're, you're, being, you're being somewhat... Uh, you're sensitive. Supercilious in, in, this, in, in this articulation. I, I was part of no elitist society. I followed my heart. I followed George Jones just as I would follow the thugs. 
I followed David Blue just as I would follow Barbara Dane. I followed Benny Goodman as I would follow Al Jolson and still refused to give up the name Al Jolson uttering from my lips because of the minstrel uh, attachment. This is the country built. You can, you, we can separate this all you want to separate this, but this record in 63 did something that other records did not do. Ringo yes, Starr... I, 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 I totally approve your point. Crossover, because how would I even know about this record if it wasn't monumentally crossed over? If it did not hit AM radio in the white areas where you lived, you would not have known that Skeeter lived or died. You're absolutely right about that. Absolutely. And that was a stroke of genius by those programmers who understood, yes, this will catch on. This is a woman of extraordinary talent and an influence, and we're going to take a shot. And boom. And boom. And I never forgot it. And you never forgot it. And it has become part of your DNA, DNA. because you're the one that suggested, I get your text, Skeeter Davis, end of the world, that's all you need to say. Yep, and I understand. I, I knew you'd respond, and not only you and I, but what I was amazed to find was it was one of Lou Reed's favorite recordings. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm wondering, you know, it's that spoken word section towards the end, you know, where she recites the lyrics, uh, so creepy, um, and, and yet so so right on. Well, you talk about kind of creepy. You know, she in 2001, she became incapacitated by breast cancer. And uh, it had met- uh, metastasized. And the following year, she made her final performance at the Grand Old Opry, performing one song, The End of the World. Wow. Now, if that's not country politan for you, I don't know what is. Oh, that's gorgeous. I mean, just, yeah, but (laughs) you have to take into consideration the audience that you're, that you're performing this for as you're dying. And I think the interpretation is different. It's the interpretation of how one side of the country sees art and the other side of the country sees art. One side of the country sees art purely from the heart. The other side of the country sees it through this uh, this psychedelic prism of many different colors, of, many, of, of all diverse uh, scenery. We are still two separate nations. This has been the message of country forever and ever and ever. And it was usurped by the machinations of the Beatles because Buck Owens singing Act Naturally is quite different than Buck Owens' self-serving satire in singing Act Naturally or the country-inspired tunes that the Beatles emanated that first introduced us at all during that period to anything that was country-related for those of us who grew up with the Ed Sullivan Show. And so when you say machinations of the Beatles, what are you implying? I'm implying that they took from everywhere that they found 
interesting, whether it be from Yes, and that was all wasn't it? And that was all good for the the stew. It's all good for the stew, but some of the recordings are more viable than others for me in retrospect. Of course. Of course they are. They also did soul stuff, you know, Motown stuff. Um, Not as good as the originals, of course. But if they pointed the way, if people got curious and and explored and found the originals, then all to the better. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think you're missing the direct point I'm making about the the way we grew up. With the war, without the war, the Beatles, the country charts, the R&B charts, the soul charts, race records coming out of the picture, everything beginning to blend into something that we couldn't possibly fully understand, and you had to have your ears and your eyes wide open to be able to grasp the true brilliance that was out there. Skeeter Davis was true brilliance. She remains true brilliance to this day. No one can ever tell me that Hee Haw was not an important television program. Skeeter Davis on Hee Haw is an important moment. She never was invited to Shindig. She was never invited to Hullabaloo. That's the point I'm making. You can cross (laughs) over, but if you're not invited to the party then you're not fully a member. Then you're kind of, you're, you're a bit of a uh, spectacle. So to your point, she probably only crossed over really that one time, yeah? Well, if you, if you take into consideration her discography... was as jolting to me as End of the World. But I'm older now, and I'm seeing things from another perspective. And Skeeter Davis had this ability to force me to see things as, as an adult. And End of the World to me never meant the Bay of Pigs. It never meant Vietnam. It never meant the Kennedy assassination. It never meant anything other than you are lost without that human being who has been able to take your hand and walk through the world with you. But that's me. But that's me. <laughs> and I lived with that, uh, and I live with her in my heart with that to this very day. So when, she, when I see that performance of her singing The End of the World, I wish she could have done it to, a, to an audience that was larger and would have been more understanding of the contribution that she made. I don't understand. It was a huge hit. So what are you saying? The, the final performance. The, when she oh, the it. final performance. Yes. I see. Yeah. I see. Yeah. If it were, if, if it had, 
if it had been televised in a Grammys or Billboard type I of see. format. I see what you're saying. You yeah. see what I'm saying? The world, she deserved more. She deserved more tribute. She, I, I think she deserved more tribute, and I think the world is changing in a way that if we are, we have to be blind if we don't see that women like Skeeter Davis are uh, are no longer viable in this culture um, to an audience that is youthful and the audience that spends a lot of money and the audience that's diverse. You're on fire. Well, if, if we're going to do fire. Show, sometimes if we're going to do shows, teach you, you do a burn. show. Sometimes if you're going to put on a show, you put on a spectacle. Sometimes if you're going to do a show, you're in a, you're in a fucked up, lousy mood and you just... Uh, Talk about you. Go know. with the flow. Go with the flow, my friend. Go yeah. with the flow. Now, get us to the record. Ladies and gentlemen, the late, <laughs> the great. No, give me a segue. Bill Mesnick singing <laughs> End of the World <laughs> as, as, only, as only he can. Skeeter Davis, End of the World. So it's, it's almost like, I'm, you know, the more and more I think about it, the more and more I think to myself, I, I'm, I'm almost getting, I'm, yeah, I'm getting angry. I'm getting angry. Yeah. I see that. Yeah, I'm getting I angry. I see that. Getting angry. It's good. Feisty. Well, it's more than feisty. It's a lifetime's worth of composing in my head that which has been considered um, viable and important and that which has been discarded. So um, I wish to pronounce one of the queens of country music, uh, Miss Skeeter Davis. The record is The End of the World. Go on beating. Mm -hmm. Why 
these eyes of mine cry Said it all, Bill. I think we've. Oh my God, yes. Said it all, right? And more. So listen, um, let listen. Tune in to Captain Billy. Captain Billy's got some things to say. He knows some things about some things. He'll play a high definition album. He'll give you a whole bunch of shit to uh, remember and talk about. You'll pass it on to your grandparents. Believe me. Captain Billy's Magic Eight Ball on Dig This and Stranger in Town. Of course, the splendid boho goes to, and we have a uh, we have a nice one coming up for you, featuring uh, Joe Mantell, the legendary Joe Mantell, and the legendary Frank Sutton. You know him as Sergeant Carter, but they were in a movie called Marty together with Ernest Borgnine, one of the great great motion pictures of all time. And we give the splendid boho to character actors who have enhanced the film. And Joe Mantell and Joe, Frank Sutton had a tie in this particular department when it came to Marty. And we will soon be introducing you to the vital four and a half minutes that made Philip Seymour Hoffman a star and that turned a motion picture that was brilliant into a more brilliant motion picture. That film is Hard Eight. Bill, what else can I tell you? Get me out of here. So on that note, uh, Cramden, uh, Norton, you be whichever one you want to be. My loving friend, Bill Mesnick, who puts up with me and has put up with me for over half a century. For over half a century, he has tolerated the the richardness of it all. And uh, I love him dearly. And we, we well, shall. You're, you're sharp as a tack. I mean, sharp well, as a tack. I didn't mention to you one of the reasons that you're probably seeing this change is I finally got the new medication. Oh, you did? Yes. Oh, when last we spoke, you said you had to wait. I had to wait, and then suddenly I get the Walgreens. Ladies and gentlemen, I, su- I suffer from a illness that is a precursor to Parkinson's disease, which took my father. It's called essential tremors. It creates a inability to keep your hands still, uh, a restless syndrome, high anxiety, uh, breathing issues, a-, a whole myriad of bullshit. And so when did you start? I just started yesterday evening. And you notice a difference? Do you notice a difference? <laughs> well, I was going to say you were off your medication, so <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> that was that was brilliant. I, I have nothing to top that. Ladies and gentlemen, the <laughs> splendid Bohemians, Bill Mesnick, Rich Buckland, put on a stack of 45. We appreciate your time, your attention, we appreciate your service, and... Uh, we love doing this uh, for you, and Bill and I love doing this together. Uh, yes, thank you, everybody, for staying with us, for if staying you did. With us. Yes. We shall see you soon with another episode of Put on a Stack of 45s. My heart.